0: Good day there guys. Welcome to Blowing Cartridges Episode 7. I am one of your hosts, Zach Clark, joined by my lovely casual gaming co-host, Brendan Tam. Brendan, how does it feel to be such a casual gamer?
1: Well, I think I used to get upset about being called a filthy casual and a Nintendo gamer, but I think you just come used to it, Zach. You just have to roll with the punches sometimes and just wake up in the morning and realize, yeah, I am a filthy casual and that's okay.
0: No, glad to see you've accepted your position in life as a filthy casual. Um, you know, playing your your favorite games like brain training and um, and Wii Sports constantly. So you know, it's good. You it came to terms. The sooner you come to terms with your problems, the the sooner you can deal with them.
1: You got to train your brain, Zach. It's 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 the most important muscle of your body. Didn't Didn't you listen to Doctor Karashima?
0: Uh look, I can't read brendan so no, and <laughs> um, if if started speaking like words, maybe, but just you know, beeps and boops mostly, and then things come on the screen. I don't know what they mean. No, but uh, obviously we're joking. I think maybe you can tell, maybe you can't. <laughs> um, if you haven't guessed, uh, we're talking about today the concept of casual gaming or games or casual gamers, however you want to look at it, uh, in comparison to uh, what you may call hardcore gamers or game gaming people depending on how you again you want to coin that that phrase i mean we've already sort of leaned into it a little bit but the games or the era era i would say that this sort of really came to you know prominence in terms of the words and and sort of phrases we use in gaming i would say it was around that sort of ds wii xbox 360 sort of ps3 era would you i you'd agree with that brendan that's probably when you would have first heard the words casual gamer or hardcore gamer
1: definitely and i i remember in 2007 when or 2006 when the wii was first announced and then when it came out and everyone was playing wii sports and talking about the wii and what it offered that there there was just that stigma attached to it that it did have motion controls and I remember I used to get the bus to school every day, and there was people on that bus that they were really interested in tech, so they got a Wii, and they were mucking around with it and playing with it, but you just felt that there was a bit of an undercurrent that, oh, this this isn't a PS3, this isn't an Xbox 360, there's something different to this. There's something that's not quite like the previous generation of consoles, which had the GameCube, the PS2, and the original Xbox. at this was something different in that there were new possibilities. And then I think the succeeding years of that as the Wii caught fire, well, not literally because it was the it was Xbox 360 that caught fire. Just look at those red wing- rings of death. But <laughs> as the Wii figuratively caught fire and it became a phenomenon socially and everyone and their grandmother was playing Wii Sports and was playing the Wii, you, you felt that gaming had taken this turn that yes, it had opened up in accessibility, but people that saw themselves as enthusiasts and saw themselves as this is my hobby, they felt under attack. And I think that was just exacerbated by things like Facebook games, like your farm villes and what have you. And I think that was the point that I think there was really that discussion really took off. What do you think? Yeah,
0: I tend to agree. I think yeah it was definitely like centered around the wii and to an extent the ds with with games like you know brain training which we just mentioned ago uh a minute ago nintendogs and that kind of stuff but but more so i think with the um with the wii because as as you mentioned it just felt different i mean it was underpowered in comparison to its um competitors the ps3 and and 360 and and the motion controls uh, you know it was that what, what Nintendo called the blue market strategy. Or, or, I mean, that's a term that's existed before then, but you know I think it was popularized among gaming enthusiasts by Nintendo at that point in time, of, of going for people that weren't gamers uh, and trying to make them gamers. And it was quite obviously successful. I mean, the Wii sold, you know, I think, over 100 million units uh, by the end of its life, and Wii Sports and um, Wii Fit are probably two of the biggest reasons for that. Uh, and they they fall quite comfortably in the bucket of what people at the time and maybe still today would call those those casual games. Uh, you know, to quote uh, the late and, and great Satara Wada, he was very much focused on you know new gamers as the sort of valuable prize, uh, most valuable prize in the industry. You know, there's a lot of business sense behind that. That you know, if you look at any um, sort of business management course, the, those sort of blue market strategies are, are still taught today and um, followed in lots of industries. Uh, and, and it came to fruition. You saw people, you know, uh, the Wii was, you know, where I saw my mum start playing games. Um, I saw, you know, <laughs> my grandmother have a crack. Um, you know, people that you just wouldn't normally think could or would play games have suddenly jumped into this hobby that I, you know, grown up with, which I at the time and still today found quite exciting. I, I, I liked it. Uh, but there was definitely a. Sentiment from people who, you know, I, I was born in the in the gaming world. You've just adopted it, kind of thing. Of like, really not liking this trend of appealing to people that that weren't them, I suppose, and then moving away from or seen as moving away from what they liked, uh, particularly again in that Nintendo space. Part of it, I think, is is also driven by Nintendo. I think had a, a different problem on the GameCube where people were just calling them kitty uh you know saying oh you don't have halo instead you got mario but then that evolved into well you don't have halo or uncharted now you've got wii sports Wii fit and it was such a weird concept to me and probably you i would have thought at the time so i was keen to get your view but like i just couldn't reconcile the concept that i'm a casual gamer because i played games like wii sports and enjoyed them uh, quite a lot with the amount of time that I spent playing video games and and reading ab- about video games that 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 concept of me being casual as like only giving a a little bit of interest to the hobby just didn't line up with my reality um I don't know if you felt a similar sort of weird emotion or with that term being thrown at you or I don't know if it was thrown at you at, at, at that point in time
1: I don't know if that term was specifically thrown at me at the time because during high school I've mentioned it in previous episodes I was deep into World of Warcraft. That was the main gaming outlet for me. So I think for those that cared, which I don't think that many did, I was more known for playing World of Warcraft than the Nintendo, for example. It was more I'd played Wii when friends came over and most of them were Nintendo gamers anyway. And we played a lot of Smash Brawl and even still GameCube games well into the early 2010s, like Kirby's Air Ride and Mario Parties and whatnot. So... Not necess- I don't think in that degree, but I do remember in high school that I guess it was this particular expectation that you were a certain age, that there were certain games you played, and I think that's most typified by, oh, all the teenagers want to play Call of Duty, and, well, I remember playing Battlefield Bad Company 2 in high school and having a lot of fun with that, and one of the main reasons I got that game and played it was because I knew people at school that were playing it. But then I guess conversely i remember in when starcraft 2 wings of liberty came out nearly everyone in my grade was playing it so it it, it can't, and and that's not necessarily your i guess mature dude bro type of game so i guess i didn't really directly get impacted by this idea of oh you're a filthy casual i think it was more something that i was exposed to in an online setting whenever i i guess lurked on forums or looked up the internet to find out about new games, and you'd always see this undercurrent of, oh, why would you want to have a Wii? Like, it's not for gaming. If you really want a game, you need to get a PS3 or an Xbox 360. That's where your Bioshocks are. That's where your Halos are. That's where, you're, that's where you get the real Call of Duty experience at. The Wii Call of Duty is bastardized. Why would you want to play that? Which, I actually did play Call of Duty Black Ops on the Wii. It was, it was fine. Nothing terrible about it, but I guess... It wasn't really the same game. I think it that that divide really existed and really exacerbated, it, especially when the Wii first launched, there was that newness about it. There was that people throw away the word gimmick as a sort of slur against it. But I think when it first launched, that that idea of a gimmick was more of a positive idea. So people wanted to try it, people wanted to play around with it. But I think when The gaming experience on the Wii sort of devolved into things like carnival games and all those shovelware games that we all see at EB Games. If you go to an EB Games today and look in their dwindling stocks of pre owned Wii games, there's always the same quote unquote trash that no one would really want to play and enjoy or even admit to owning. So I think that was the point that you really had that divide and you really had that argument of, oh, you can't be a real game if you play the Wii. That's what. I play at Christmas with my family. It's not something that I'm going to go home and play for hours on end on my own.
0: And clearly those people never played Xenoblade um, or they would understand. what it's like to spend, <laughs> <Those> <laughs> to spend poor, lots of hours poor poor with souls. Me. Yeah. They've missed out on one. Um, yeah. I, I tend to agree. I mean, when I was sort of saying, I guess that term was thrown at me, it definitely wasn't ever directly thrown at me in real life. It was, it was a hundred percent. Those, those, um, online comments you know kind of like the rivalries i guess between um internet forums dedicated to you know nintendo versus sony versus microsoft kind of thing or just you know those general gaming forums where you, you mix us all together and just watch us fight <laughs> um like a cockpit almost except virtual but yeah it's an interesting one because what really gave rise to what it what made a game either casual or not didn't seem to really be the type of person playing it necessarily uh all the time, if that makes sense. Because I mean, we've sort of thrown out, you know, in your what you were just talking about before, where Call of Duty is a pretty or was, and I think still is a, a fairly widely played game by a lot of people who I would say play games quite casually. You know, the kind of people that play two or three games a year, maybe. You know, they pick up Call of Duty, maybe a sports game, and uh, maybe one or two other things, but they're not like what I like to call now game enthusiasts rather than hardcore gamers or whatever you want to, you know, court term you want to use, uh, who, who buy games monthly, weekly, you know, daily, <laughs> um, and, and are playing different things constantly. And so it was less about how often and how regularly people were playing games and it felt more about how accessible they were. You know, Call of Duty is not particularly accessible to someone who is not familiar with either a standard, you know, gaming controller or a mouse and keyboard, it's a pretty big barrier to entry for those kind of people. Uh, whereas, again, Wii Sports, brain training, because of how simple they were, and they relied on concepts that are pretty like parallel to things everyone does, right? Like swinging a Wii remote is like swinging a baseball bat or a tennis racket, or Drawing on the DS is just drawing, right? Like, if you can write the number three on a piece of paper, you can write the number three on a on a DS touchscreen. You don't really need to learn a new skill set um, that we picked up as kids through when we were just naturally learning things when we are handed controls at a young age. And that seems to be the real actual divide, in my opinion, of, of what made a game casual versus what made a game either hardcore or, you know, something in between.
1: I think you're right, and it was something I was thinking about when we were discussing what topics to do for this podcast and we came on this one because I think there's this idea that some people have that, oh, gaming has become a lot more casual. It's not as hardcore as it was during the Super Nintendo days or the NES days, and they'll go back to some NES games that had really archaic and obtuse mechanics or... Level design and think. Oh, I bet kids these days couldn't play these. Like, look how hard they are. Gamers in the 80s and 90s were hardcore. They were able to play all these games and sat down and figured out all these obtuse puzzles and and just game design that wasn't particularly good. But I think there's the other divide to it, which you just mentioned. In that, if I gave you Contra on the NES to play and you'd never played a video game before you'd kind of be able to figure it out because an NES controller only had so many buttons. You moved around with the analog stick. You pressed A to fire, B to jump. Well, maybe it's the other way around, but it doesn't really matter. That's all you did. You, you ran to the right and sh- shot at things and tried to clear the stage. It wasn't that complicated. The difficulty came into it in another way in that, well, you had to have good reaction times and you had to understand ha- how the game worked to a degree. But if I gave you a Madden or a Call of Duty, sort of some games that are derived as dude bro or oh, you're not a hardcore gamer, you don't play a 80-hour RPG, you play Call of Duty occasionally. But that person has grown up with those games so they understand how they work so they can pick up the new Madden or Call of Duty and, the 122nd edition of Call of Duty and get through it because they know how it works. But if I gave it to you and you'd never played a game before, unlike Contra, or game on the NES, you, you'd you have a lot of trouble navigating a 3D space, you'd have a lot of trouble figuring out how the game works and what you do, and I think that's something that has occurred in gaming, that gaming has become harder to break into if you're not someone who starts young and learns how games work and, I guess, build up your skill level. If you, if you just chucked a game to your parent, and one was an NES game and one was a 3D shooter. I think the NES game, but they might not do well in the NES game. They might struggle with the NES game. They might not enjoy it, but I think they'd be able to play it, which I'm not necessarily sure applies to a 3D game.
0: Yeah, 100%. I think that 3D 2D divide coupled with again increased amount of inputs buttons, um sticks and that kind of stuff is is a massive factor for what blocks a person who's not currently a gamer and is, you know an adult or an older you know older adolescent or something like that from jumping in and that's that's probably given a rise to how you know the console gaming world kind of formed in in a, in a sense right like i would say the ps2 GameCube, xbox euro kind of was that peak level of complexity in a way until the wii came and tried to tear it down in, in a way, in a sense, because you know, people who were first time gamers just couldn't probably wrap their heads around those controllers and just didn't bother. They thought, Nut, no, this is not for me, I'm just not a gamer. Uh, and the Wii came in and the DS and tried to change their perception of, No, 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 it's not that you can't play games, it's just these aren't the right machines or the right style of games for you. But as time's gone on, when well, we've kind of Regressed in a, in a sense away from motion controls. I mean, they're still there, but not to the extent that we had them. Uh, and similarly, on consoles, at least touch controls are sort of present, but again, not a massive feature. I would say, um, you know, RAP the Wii U did try it its best, uh, <laughs> didn't it pan out. That sort of casual gaming space or that really accessible gaming space has has been eaten up and and catered to. By I would say mobile games primarily, uh, where again it's a it's a fairly usually a fairly simple control method of of just touching stuff right if, at, at best and maybe uh, a similar sort of NES or virtual analog D-pad or analog stick and a couple of virtual buttons at at most in in many cases something that people no matter what age they are as long as they can operate a smartphone which even you know maybe, I look at my dad maybe not everyone. <laughs> can get past that concept to begin with um but if you can you can probably play a game on it uh, and that's where that i think casual market has really shifted you know in the last 7 8 i don't know how many years since the iphone became the standard phone uh, 10 years probably more at this stage uh, not to not to make myself feel feel old
1: <laughs> i think there is a interesting comparison to be made and it ties into what we were talking earlier in that This is very similar to when gaming first hit the scene in the 80s in arcades and people were playing Pac-Man, Galaga, Missile Command, and games like that, Donkey Kong, which had a limited amount of gaming inputs, but were very much targeted at that, I guess, blue market strategy of enticing as many people as possible with bright lights, flashing lights and sounds, and really getting people, pulling them in and getting them to play and put their quarters into these machines when they weren't that difficult to play. But if you really wanted to put time into them and work out how they work, that they did have a level of depth to them. And this has continued on into phone games, I think, where a lot of them have microtransactions, which which can be contrasted to putting quarters into an arcade machine and having another go, that these are games that are meant to, be very quick experiences that you might play every now and then it's not something you're going to take home with you and play all the time days on end like modern console games are that there is that different element to what the purpose of them are it is for that quick hit it's for that i'm on the train i have a 20 minute commute i'm just gonna pull my phone out and play jetpack joyride or diner dash or pokemon go or what have you, I'm just purely going to do this because I'm bored and I have a phone and I'm just going to tap at it and get some satisfaction, gratification out of it. It is a bit of an odd stigma that we do, a lot of enthusiast gamers will be critical of phone games, be critical when companies like Nintendo try to reach out and branch out into the phone game market. I guess we think it's undercutting what we classify as real games, but I think they exist in their own space and it's very much, as you said, it's very much for people like our parents, people like maybe our grandparents and people that didn't grow up playing games like we did, that they just want to have something to do to keep themselves from just twiddling with their phones and looking at Facebook Messenger every moment they're on a bus, they might just play something instead. And I think that's what the purpose of it is for. It's completely different to the other side the other end of the gaming experience where you sit down on a couch and play the last of us part 2 for 5 hour sessions and you finish it in a couple of weeks
0: yeah i mean i sort of agree uh yeah they do sort of target different audiences or i think it's becoming clear right you know i think the idea that we have a transition to a completely phone gaming world is pretty i wouldn't say it's unlikely cuz who knows by at some point phones could bloody run uncharted and last of us so so maybe we will operate everything off a a phone or something like it but i mean the idea of just playing just touch screen kind of games universally by everyone i think is is definitely not going to happen and not you know these free-to-play or very low-cost experiences again why they appeal very much to a large portion of the population do not necessarily replace the you know, for retail release or more premium game as a service, uh, that uh, you know, those who play on consoles or PC are, are used to just to touch on the micro because I think we've we've sort of highlighted one of the positives, I guess, of, of the rise in casualization or uh, of gaming, which is bringing more people into this space. Uh, which I know some people might. Very happy to have their hobby be very exclusive, but I think most people understand it's good to have more people invested in video games. Uh, it brings more money, more interest in the medium, and helps the medium probably grow in the long run. But on the flip side, microtransactions have kind of come from this free to play model, which I won't say started on mobiles, because it probably started on PC, um, even going back to like RuneScape, which was technically a free to play model of sorts. But it's definitely become a massive part of mobile gaming, largely because it's very hard to convince these modern casual gamers, to call them that, I suppose, to spend any money up front to play a game. Instead, you almost need to, well, companies are either finding ways to extract money, to, to use a, a term that sounds quite evil, and maybe it is evil, uh, out of them over the course of them playing the game over you know, weeks, months, years, if they have their way two questions do you think that's a bad thing that the sort of way microtransactions are going i'm guessing the answer is yes but keen to hear why you think that and two do you think that's because of this casualization or that they're just two phenomenons that are kind of happening at the same time but aren't necessarily you know one causing the other i suppose
1: it's an interesting dynamic at play and i'd argue it goes back further than examples like runescape because it There's quite a few hallmarks it shares with shareware games of the early 90s when you could could download or you could get a free copy of early 90s PC games. Like, I think it was Apogee Software that used that model quite heavily. You could get things like Commander Keen, things like Wolfenstein and Doom. and Actually, not Doom, but Wolfenstein, I think the first Duke Nukem that were... You could play the first couple of levels for free, but if you wanted to play... More than that, you then had to pony up some money. You had to, there were some shareware games that continued in the early 2000s. You had to go on the website and buy the game to get the rest of it, or you had to go to the shop and buy it in the early 90s when they were using that model. So I think there's some aspects of the shareware model that continued into free to play microtransaction games. I think a lot of one of the big issues a lot of people have with free-to-play games and microtransactions is that there's a lot of free-to-play games, especially the online multiplayer ones, not necessarily the phone games, but the games that if you don't pony up your money, if you don't buy microtransactions, you're not going to be able to compete. You're going to get blown away by the competition because a lot of those games are designed that, yes, you can get the exact same experience if you don't pay. You can get the exact same experience if you just grind out whatever currency the game uses, or like in a game like Hearthstone, you just grind out and get the cards you need. That's probably one of the less egregious free to play games.
0: Oh, I, I used to play for a while um, Clash Royale, and you definitely hit a cap <laughs> at some point, you know. And that's that's a really massive um, mobile free to play game that thrives on uh, microtransactions.
1: Well, precisely. So I think there is that predatory nature of microtransactions that they're designed to get as much money out of you that I don't like, to answer your question, I don't like the direction that's taken the gaming industry because I think we discussed it a bit with Luke in the last episode about the value games and game prices. There's a lot of full retail price games now that add microtransactions on top to try to get more money out of consumers. And I think that's even more egregious than these predatory iPhone games, predatory Facebook games that are free to play but are designed in a way to get as much money out of you. The The full retail games, especially EA games in the mid-2010s like Dead Space 3, like Star Wars Battlefront where they were full retail games but in Dead Space 3 there was microtransactions for buying more bullets which I think is the most ridiculous microtransaction, even worse than the one of the earliest mainstream DLCs for a full retail release was, of course... The horse armour. Elder Scrolls IV Oblivion, where... Well, I think I just heard you say it was the horse armour that you paid extra money just to get a cosmetic item in the game. And a lot of people laughed at that, but the fact is it's got much worse because Dead Space 3, you had to pay for bullets. Star Wars Battlefront, if you wanted to play as... Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker, these characters, it was either basically grind for a hundred hours or you pay $10. When it's designed to do that, it's very clear that it is just a way for companies to make more money. It, It very much takes away from the experience, especially for multiplayer online games where you can see people running around as Darth Vader and you think, oh, well if I want to do that as well, that looks like a lot of fun, but if I want to do that as well, I either have to play this game for a very, very long time or I have to pay more money than I've already played. I think part of that has been created by what we discussed last week, that companies are trying to get as much money out of a game without upping the RRP, the recommended retail price. But I think it's also is, to go to your second question you asked, I think it does link back to the idea that The emergence of phone games and the emergence of microtransactions are interlinked because games like Farmville, games like, can't really think of that many early mobile games, but
0: neither can I. I mean, I can think of like Angry Birds, but you actually had to pay for that, so maybe that's not the best example. But like Candy Crush is obviously a massive one still today. Yes,
1: things like Candy Crush and there were those games that were designed to have microtransactions. They they took off. Like, look at. Look at Zynga with Farmville on Facebook. That company became huge. They they were raking in millions, and that was a free-to-play game with microtransactions, and people were very happy to to give up their hard-earned cash for these games that honestly, no offense to anyone that enjoyed those experiences, but they were quite shallow experiences. It, there wasn't really much to them. Like they they were well designed from a I guess from a design point of view, because of how simple and how accessible they were and how they were able to create that phenomenon of free-to-play I guess quote-unquote casual games but I think a lot of big companies in the console space saw that saw that emergence of a new market and thought well this is a viable strategy to undertake this is a viable way to make more money we can use this new model that clearly has acceptance amongst consumers to succeed and have games that They can build these experiences to financially succeed, and I think we've seen that in a lot of online multiplayer games, that multiplayer games, for the most part, have adopted this model, because I think part of it is that accessibility angle, that they want as many players as possible playing it, and what better strategy if I, if you and I were creating a game like A League of Legends or Overwatch, you could either charge 20 bucks for people to play it, or, and then... I guess, depend on word of mouth and people start playing it and bully their friends into, oh, you have to pick up this amazing new game from Zack and Brendan Studios. It's it's amazing. It's a really good online experience. Like, it's only $20, go buy it. Or, as we've seen now, with e- even the bigger players do it, like with established IPs, like we've mentioned, Hearthstone, which is Warcraft-inspired. Blizzard also did Overwatch, League of Legends, Dota 2 all free to play online games and I think part of the strategy is that they can entice people in like it's very easy for me to instead of saying you have to pay $20 to play this game with me I can just tell my friends I know it happened to me a lot in the end of high school when these games really started taking off but I got pulled into League of Legends and mainly played with friends because I was told well Brendan you don't have to pay anything for this game you you go home and you download it and then you can join us and play and people will get hooked on it and they'll spend money on skins, they'll spend money on cosmetic things, they'll spend money if it's a free-to-play game that's designed in a way that you're, you're hand-strung by the fact you haven't play, paid any money. Yeah, That's a genius to these model, to this model that I think it is also a positive because people are having these experiences with friends and having these great social experience in these games and it wouldn't have occurred if it wasn't for the free-to-play model.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, a really, I think personally, great example of how you're 100% correct in the reason free-to-play models work is the Battle Royale market share war between, you know, Fortnite and PUBG, where PUBG obviously was the leading player for for a number of time. And then, you know, Fortnite comes out, it's free-to-play, PUBG costs on PC at least money to play um i think it's 20 bucks usd but i could be wrong could have changed and while i'm sure there are other reasons people like fortnite over pubg dancing building that kind of stuff <laughs> i i i honestly think it's the free to play element because it's i guess you said much easier for uh me to go to you hey mate let's try out this free game tonight uh it's a lot of fun than it is to say hey mate come spend 20 bucks to play this free fun game with me um even though 20 bucks might seem like, not a lot to some people, to others it's it's quite a bit, uh, particularly when there are a lot of free and decent to great games available for free uh, with varying levels of, uh, I, I guess, need to spend money. Like, it's, you said League of Legends um, and Dota, you know, largely cosmetics, though I think, you know, there's, there's also buying champions as well for the League but you can pretty much play the game and have as good a time as, as anyone without spending a single dime. So yeah, no, that's, that's definitely a massive factor. I guess what I'm curious though, do you think like cause there are some games that try and sort of sell you items or whatever to try and help you progress, uh, which again is likely to appeal to someone who's say time poor or just not fantastic at a game and doesn't want to put in the time to get better or again can't. How do you feel about that kind of stuff? Like, is that something? I mean, I guess to, to, a good example would be before it was normalized in a way is kind of like paying someone to level up your your WoW character to you know max level so so you can just get on with end game content with your mates. Whereas I think now they've even implemented like items you can buy to to get you at least part way up that chain. You know, do you think that's? I mean, is that rising cause of casual gamers where people who don't have the willingness or time to invest in just you know playing through and the patience to to get to those stages in whatever game it is and do you think it's a good business model or something that people are just being a bit taking advantage of of people's laziness and uh, i guess fomo in some regards or or being seen as inferior if they're not at a certain point in a in a particular game
1: it's quite a complex quandary in many ways i think because on one hand i think in a lot of ways it it cheapens the experience of a lot of these games in that especially for ones that i guess they it bumps you ahead it gets you to the stage other people are you lose that you lose that sense of challenge you lose that sense of achievement of you've got to that point on your own and it also cheapens the experiences of people that don't pay for this i guess this boost they don't pay for the leg up they they get there on their own and then they look at people that they're now playing against or playing with and they think oh well i put in all these hours and get to where i am and these people sort of bought the game yesterday paid 50 dollars, and now they're at the point i am what's the point this this is badly designed this is a flawed system and i and i think that is a part of a lot of a lot of it because Using a WoW example, since I guess I know that from experience, in a lot of ways they hollowed out the experience of leveling from level 1 to level 60 when it was then Burning Crusade went to 70 and each expansion, until recent ones, would boost the level cap by 10. And in a lot of ways they cheapened the older content, so new players were very much enticed to play as much as you can to get to that the starting level of the new expansion and then you can experience the next latest and greatest part of World of Warcraft. And over the course of a few expansions, they made it a lot more easy to progress through the earlier content so people could get to the new content. And in my mind, anyway, they they made the older content worse because the older content was a lot of fun. Well, a lot of it would be nostalgia on my part, but I enjoyed a lot of that. And then in later years, you could literally sit in one of the capital cities in World of Warcraft just use the instant dungeon finding group application that was in-game and find groups to go through dungeons and gain experience through that, gain levels through that. Whereas when I first started playing World of Warcraft, that function didn't exist. You had to actually go to the dungeons. You actually had to build your own groups out of other people that were playing and it had more of a social experience. And in a lot of ways, that was killed by the implementation of mechanics to speed people through that content where I guess you weren't paying extra for that content so it wasn't not really what we're talking about here but I guess it does speak to more casualization in that Blizzard implemented that to get people through the game to get people to the new content but make it less of a chore make it a quicker experience but in a lot of ways I think it served to cheapen the entire whole experience because it just became a grind to get to The point where the game really opened up and i think a lot of companies that use microtransactions in that sort of predatory way that's what they're trying to do they they try to build this conception of well you really want to get to this point in the game to enjoy it and if you come over here into this corner and pay me 10 bucks i'm going to get you there but if you don't do give me that money you're going to spend the next 20 hours getting to that point and you're not really going to enjoy it and I think that's the part I, I guess there's, there's probably not that many examples of that I can think of off the top of my head, but I'm, I'm sure they exist and I'm sure they're out there.
0: I definitely fell prey to it myself a little bit in the, um, my sort of uni days when we were all playing uh tiny tower on the phones, uh, and just seeing some people who, I don't know how they did it without paying, but they just got their tiny towers to be less tiny towers very quickly. Um, it definitely made you want to spend that cash, and I I spent like a dollar or two just to try and get up to speed with with their towers. Um, that, I guess that FOMO really hit me. Don't know if the same would happen today, but I can definitely see that how others would feel that way in a ton of games. Um, you know, when you're seeing your friends having a lot of fun with whatever it might be, end game content or just some feature that doesn't unlock till later and you you want to catch up and it can be really tempting particularly when it's again a microtransaction rather than a more macro <laughs> transaction i suppose it's a lot easier to spend a dollar a few cents uh than it is to spend you know 10 20 30 bucks to get to a particular stage of a game let's maybe move away from the microtransactions part but to a sort of tangentially related topic uh so we can't really talk i think about hardcore gamers if we don't bring up what is Become a bit of a, a meme a series or or uh, genre depending on your point of view that has become synonymous with being a hardcore rough and tumble best of the best gamer and that is souls games or souls likes or anything <laughs> from software puts out <laughs> and that i think on with Sekiro, which came out last year which was you know s- still sort of put in the family of from software souls like games re really sparked a pretty heated debate about difficulty and accessibility. And I think that kind of relates to what we were talking about in a sense, but more when we're thinking about single-player games rather than multiplayer games, right? Because the idea of variable difficulty levels is that I, you know, if I want to get through a game, but I don't want to get good, <laughs> as, as the internet would say, I bump it down to easy, very easy, uh, casual, whatever the game wants to call it uh and i can play through it experience it in, in its entirety just as much as someone who plays on ultra extreme hard you know mode and and have a full-on conversation about the ending and all the stuff that happens um probably where you might just get confused is when the hardcore gamer person says oh you know how hard was you know this boss fight, and I'm like, I don't know, man. I <laughs> I breezed through it. I just pressed a button, and they were dead.
1: Uh, I was playing on movie mode, and there was no boss fight. It was just a cutscene.
0: Yeah, I just I just pressed play on YouTube and got there. <laughs> <laughs> I guess like, where I'm coming at is, as someone who plays a lot of single player games yourself these days, do you feel like your experience is cheapened by the availability of easier modes in games that allow somebody else to get through it without putting in the effort that you hypothetically put in uh, or the having the level of skill
1: that you did to to get to the end it very much depends on what the game is and what type of game it is because i think there's a lot of different ways difficulty is handled in games whereas well some games will have variable difficulty settings as you describe that you can play on easy mode you can play on casual mode you can play on insane mode or whatever the hardest difficulty on a fire Emblem game is called these days i think it is insane or mayhem or some some word that's quite scary to a lot of people deters everyone yeah. oh exactly where is it then there's games like it's a big complaint that a lot of 3d Mario games get these days That are oh, the level designs too easy or oh, Mario Odyssey. It doesn't get good until the dark side of the moon where it's balls to the wall, hard as nails difficulty that will make you cry in your corner of your room as you curl up in a ball, because I haven't finished that level before um, yet because it is
0: get on my level. I all the moons I got in that one. So you know this is why you're the filthy casual. Well,
1: Exactly. You're the true pro here, but, yeah, for games that make the experience easier to make it more accessible to a broader audience in a lot of ways they can become more hollow experiences because an important part of gaming is that it provides a challenge you can get a sense of accomplishment when you finish it and if if it's a game that's really easy and never really gets to that point where it challenges you 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 go, you'd go away from it thinking that well I just spent 20 hours on playing this game. It had some fun moments, but it didn't really challenge me. It didn't really, it could have done a lot more if it did X, Y, Z. Like we see that with, it's a lot of people's criticism of the latest Paper Mario game, which we have to give a shout out to, of course, because
0: Every episode. that's our
1: thing. Whereas a lot of people, and I'm included, I, I think that game's great. I think it's brilliant in a lot of ways, but I think they could have done a lot of things more with that battle system. They could have made it a more nuanced. They could have, add a more complexity to it to make it a fuller experience but I think in game design I'm not a game designer so I'm sure if there's any game designers listening to this they'll bite my head off but I think there's a trade-off you have to make as a designer to accessibility and difficulty in that you can make a game ultra hard really challenging but a lot of people aren't going to be able to play it because of that fact you're going to have less of a, a smaller potential market for your game because if it's really difficult, to word of mouth will go around and say, this is a really difficult game, it's poorly designed, don't play it, where I guess, to go to your example, that works for um, Demon Souls, that works for Souls-like, because that's part of the appeal, but I think it is a fine balance to achieve, and then there's games that have variable difficulties. I just played a, a game recently on the Switch called Warsaw, it's a Turn-based RPG similar to Darkest Dungeon has some roguelike elements, and that has a variable difficulty setting. You can play on hard difficulties, but playing on a harder difficulty really just makes a lot of the enemies bullet sponges. It takes they they just get more health, they and they deal more attack to you. And I think a lot of games use that to create difficulty. And I think that also cheapens the experience if you're a gamer that is an experienced gamer. You you enjoy a certain genre, and you think, oh. I love RPGs, I'm going to play this on the hardest difficulty, but then you're 20 hours in and you realise well, all this is doing is it's making it harder for me to get through this game because it, it does it in a cheap way, it doesn't do it in a deep and nuanced way, it's not really challenging, it's just more frustrating. So I think there is I guess two ends of the spectrum of you can make a game so dead boring easy that it takes away any value from playing that game, or you can make a game extremely really really hard and then that's not well designed either because it's just frustrating at that point it's not a challenge it's not satisfying it's just you want to punch a hole in your television
0: yeah i mean that's a really really good point i mean i was thinking while you're talking about what, how i approach difficulty in games and it's it's quite variable honestly like that rpg example i'll be honest i play most jrpgs on easy uh maybe normal but never anything beyond that just because i i don't necessarily love turn-based combat that much it's it's fine but it's not my favorite uh and i hate grinding <laughs> basically i just don't want to get to a point in the game where i feel like i have to go back and do something more to progress so, you know, like Persona 5, which is uh, a JRPG I loved a lot. I don't think I would have enjoyed the experience that much more if I did pick it on very hard or normal or whatever was higher than what I did. Because to me, what I enjoyed in that game was just the story, the interactions, being able to talk to my friends about, you know, who the best girl is.
1: <laughs> who your wife who is, yes.
0: Makoto represent. Yeah, <laughs> my, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and that that was, to me, was my preference uh, and being ha- able to play that in a lot of easier difficulty was great on the flip side something like celeste which is you know like a side scrolling platform game which i didn't use them but apparently has some very good easy slash accessibility sort of cut options you can tick on and off in, in a bit more of a dynamic fashion you know i i played that game as intended and that's because to me the challenge of that platforming was a big appeal and a big part of why I enjoyed it so much. Uh, and you felt, again, as you said, that sense of accomplishment every time you got through a, a screen on the game. And plus, you know, if I wanted to make, take it even further, I could go back and get all the, the hidden collectibles and the strawberries in this case, which, which I didn't. Um, but you know, and it was an option that was Filthy there. Casual. Yeah, I know. Not, not good enough. Maybe I'll go back <laughs> one day, and do the B and C sides of all the, the levels. So I do like, when games have those options, and I, I guess I tend to be on the side of I think where it's feasible, because obviously I know you know a game developer is going to yell at me if I don't mention this <laughs> that the more accessibility and and difficulty sort of options and variants and have the more money it just has the cost to develop right because you got to test those to make sure they all work and you know uh, spend time actually coding them. Um, and then designing them if you're a designer, changing how things work a little bit. But I think they're good things to have in games. And personally, I've never felt like, you know, like I'm not sitting here upset that people that didn't do the darker side of the moon still got the credits in Mario Odyssey, right? Like, I'm like, that's fine. <laughs> I don't feel like you've um, you've cheapened my experience by just doing the uh, sort of the easiest parts of the game and, and having a good time but i I do get a sense that some people feel that way about some games they play where they just they just get upset that somebody can come in and play on very easy and quote unquote beat it and you saw that a little bit again with that discussion last year um about the Souls likes so where people are saying they don't want to see people be able to play Dark Souls four whenever it comes out on a on an easy or Elden, um, Elden Ring when it comes out sometime soon on a, on an easy difficulty, they just don't want that to happen. They feel like it's sort of against the experience that they've had, which I kind of get, but at the same time, I, I'll admit it's one that I struggle to fully relate to. Um, I don't know about you. Do you feel strongly one way or another about whether, like, you know, if a Dark Souls game came out with uh, some form of easier mode, whether that's just a few settings or an actual easy button you click at the start of the game, would that, you think, bother you in, in, in any way?
1: Not at all. And I think, to be a bit crude, I think it's purely a a dick-measuring contest for some of these people that want to say, oh, well, <laughs> I finished Sekiro and I I finished all from software games. Look at how good I am. Look at how hardcore I am I'm fantastic at games and they don't want someone to be able to say well I finished Sekiro 2 I might have done it on a casual easier mode but I I finished it as well I got to those credits for those people it cheapens the experience because they they aren't a part of this exclusive club anymore because I think ultimately at the end of the day if well if they add a mode to a Souls-like game that makes it easier for players if they choose the mode and it's an optional mode but They don't compromise the normal Souls-like experience. They don't compromise the experience you get playing a game like Bloodborne or Sekiro or Dark Souls 3 that if you don't tick that option, if you don't tick you want to play on that easier mode, you have the exact same experience. It's not cheap in any way. They haven't made design decisions to make it an easier experience. They've just maybe made it easier to defeat certain enemies like... A great recent example actually is with Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition where they had a, I can't remember what is called, a casual mode or an easy mode, but I can't remember the exact word they used to describe it, but basically it's a mode that you can switch on and off at any time, you can make the game easier, and basically boss fights are very simple. You can can still lose, you can still die, but it's very hard to at that point because it, it does make the game a lot easier because enemies just... Don't have as much health and they don't do as much damage to you and you do more damage to them so you kill them very easily so you can get through that game you can get to the end you can experience the story i know luke our guest from the last episode that's what he did because he played about 50 hours of xenoblade on the 3ds and he was enjoying it but he found it a bit too difficult towards the end of it he he couldn't keep on going with it so he just dropped the game after a significant investment of time because That difficulty just got to him, and it got to the point where he wasn't enjoying the game anymore, but the easier mode allowed him to get to the end of the game, get to experience that game in its full narrative-wise. Yes, you could argue that you haven't experienced the game in its full because you didn't enjoy the mechanics of the battle system. You didn't learn how to master how the game works, and you missed out on all these fun things you can do when you exploit the game, but the fact is a lot of people don't necessarily play those games to get that part of it they want to get to the story they want to experience that aspect of the game and i think these sort of modes allow that to happen and that's a great thing so i think it very much depends on if there's any compromises that are made if you add this mode into the game and if there's no compromises made to the game and you you can easily play it and ignore it i I don't see an issue with it at all
0: well it sounds like we're on the same page I do want to just quickly address, I, and we won't go into this in detail, but I also get that some people will argue, oh, it's the creator's intent. They might, you know, artistic creativity, they might just say, nah, it needs to be this difficulty because that's how I, director or, or producer of the game or whatever, want it to be. I, I think that's a different thing to consider, um, but I, I don't think we'll go into that in, in detail here because um, I think we could probably have a whole discussion around, <laughs> around, you know, artistic you know intent of, a, of the developer versus what fans want in video games difficulty and otherwise so the,
1: the hideo kojima episode
0: yeah the hideo kojima episode uh sponsored by monster oh, i
1: thought i thought it was going to be sponsored by fedex
0: ah both
1: all of them <laughs> uh, is it
0: jeff, jeff featuring jeff keely hopefully as, as a guest and guillermo del toro will be our producer norman
1: readers on lead guitar
0: but you know i i get that's a thing you know, don't yell at us that we didn't think about it because we did. And I guess the other thing, and one other thing that came up a bit in the debate, which is it's a bit harder to pass, but I think we should talk about now when it comes to accessibility and difficulty is uh, accessibility from the perspective of uh, differently abled people. You know, I remember, um, and I'm going to pronounce his name wrong and I apologize, but I think his name is Stephen Spawn from, runs the Able Gamers Foundation in America was, you know, speaking pretty vocally in favour of more difficulty options, uh, in something like a, a Dark Souls to make it easier for people like him, uh, and others who, who just don't have the physical capabilities to do the necessary reaction times with the controls available to them to get through the game, no matter what. And that's an interesting one to think about as well, because it's it's a lot harder, right? Like if you think about the level the various ways in which people can be you know, differently abled from you might have to have, and um, you know, I, for example, when I grew up, uh, and I had a lot of, I don't know if therapy is the right word, but sort of uh sessions to try and improve this. But I really struggle with um sort of being able to visualize an object if it's been moved to a different position. I don't know how to describe it any better. But for example, like a Rubik's Cube is very challenging for me because I just can't picture when I move this, you know, three squares backwards. How, how it'll look on the other side of the cube and so paper mario some of those puzzles um while a lot of them were quite easy uh, i did struggle with some because i'm like i just can't visualize three three moves ahead of of how i move this circle and so stuff like that where i could just pay some toads to, to solve some of those puzzles <laughs> for me it was actually quite good um and get through puzzles that way but on the flip side you could have someone who's Blind, right? And I mean, there are blind gamers. You can, you can. I think there's literally a, a Twitter user at Blind Gamer who, who that's what he does. And that's a, you know, I can't even imagine myself as as a, as a non-blind person. You know, how you would develop a game to be completely playable by someone who can't see anything, right? And I think it's a really sensitive but important topic to discuss because I think we don't ever want to exclude people from. Being able to play something because of you know how they were born or how they've ended up due to life circumstances, I suppose, but without you know universal things like the Xbox adaptive controller, which is a a great um piece of tech which sort of gives some uniform level of accessibility, it's really i I just personally can't see how every single game is going to be able to cater for every kind of of human being I suppose that may potentially have an interest in playing it i don't know if i really have a point to make (laughs) it was just more something i wanted to raise in terms of this sort of accessibility element that i think it's good that it's becoming more and more thought about you know like we're seeing more colorblind modes in games which is fantastic um and i think there'll be more work to be done but it is such a challenging one to think about in terms of like how far developers need to go to cater to these people particularly when in some cases they they might make up just a tiny percentage of their potential player base.
1: I think it's a really interesting point you bring up, Zach, and very much worthy of discussion because I think it it does provide the, the positive element to this accessibility discussion we're having where there's been some fantastic strides over the last five, ten years in making a lot of games more accessible. You have things like Mario Kart 8 where you have the ability to basically have auto drive and you can just steer or you could or and use the items and you can still experience mario kart you can have a fantastic time and a lot of people that might be one-handed or have low functioning ability in their hands they can still experience these games and they can get satisfaction from playing them and they can get that sense of accomplishment we were talking about earlier that sometimes casualization and accessibility of games undermines for some people but i guess on the flip side for people that that accessibility is a real issue for when it comes to games they they get that great sense of achievement for these modes that yes you can argue that oh cheapens mario kart because you can play without having to hold down a to go straight but for a lot of for some people that aren't able to do that they they don't care about that they just they just love the fact they can play Mario Kart. They love the fact they can play with their friends and family and they can play with other people. And I, I think that's fantastic. But I definitely agree with your point that I think there are limits. We unfortunately can't make every single game accessible to every person in the entire world because something like a visual novel, that you can't really make a visual novel accessible to someone who is blind unless you... Well, I guess you could introduce voice acting to the entire game and it could work in that fashion. But there's still a lot of visual-based puzzles and things like that that are very hard to overcome from a design point of view. You're very much creating an entirely different sort of game if you took that into account. So I think there definitely are aspects that limit a game designer's ability to make all their games truly accessible in that, yes, yeah, so you could sit down and say, I want this game, I want someone who's here you're an impaired to play this game. I want someone who's blind to be able to play this game. I want someone who only has function a function a one functioning hand to play this game. And that's fantastic, but there are going to be some things, there's going to be compromises you're going to have to make in some cases to ensure that can happen. I think, as you mentioned, there's things like adaptive controls and the like that overcome that in a very intelligent way, in a fantastic way, but... I think there are some things that, unfortunately, can't be overcome.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's it. I mean, yes, in theory, everything can be overcome with time and money. Um, but, unfortunately, those aren't uh, unlimited resources. Um, and it's it's probably not reasonable as as mean as that can sound to say that, that every developer can and should make their game accessible to pretty much everyone i would have thought yeah i i think though in general trend trending in the right direction don't know if casual gaming has necessarily caused it but i think again that sort of chase that has been sparked through in casual gaming to try and broaden the audience as much as possible has definitely probably helped a bit of, of people thinking more about other people
1: i think it's also just we've had a great growth in i guess awareness and. Empathy towards people that have those impairments that didn't necessarily exist 10, 20 years ago. I think, in a lot of ways, society was very much happy to ignore those people and go along their ways, especially people that created entertainment content. They very much decided, well, the large market's here, we assume everyone can play this in this certain way. So that's what we're going to design, that's what we're going to do. Whereas, I think thankfully in contemporary times designers and companies are a bit more aware of limitations certain people have and i think there's some great designers and great creators out there that keep that in mind when they create content and i think that's brilliant
0: yeah 100%. i mean we're considering we come from a society where you know if you go in old buildings or or certain countries where um they haven't sort of advanced their building code or whatever I'm just seeing how challenging it is to get someone around in a wheelchair uh, compared to today where most buildings, if not all built in the last 10, 20 years here in Australia at least, uh, are designed to accommodate that level of accessibility. I mean, it's no surprise that games are a bit behind when (laughs) even as a society we weren't even uh, allowing for sort of basic, you know, parts of of just being able to participate in the world were even considered, I suppose, for people who are differently abled. But yeah, no. I think we both agree, trending in a good direction, continuing hopefully this positive train uh, of accessibility. One thing that's really come to fruition, I think, in large parts because of COVID, but also the way these games are designed, is, is a lot of really accessible multiplayer games have have risen to popularity in the last you know few months. Um, you know, you'd say at the start of the year, Animal Crossing was is one of those, being a fairly easy game to pick up and play, and then. Through the need of, of people wanting to connect and play with people online, obviously Jackbox, uh, another you know fantastic set of sort of party games that you can play using your phone, um, and more recently uh, Among Us, a game from t- an indie game from 2018. I don't know how I didn't know about it until this year. Obviously, they, you know I think they've said their marketing was horrible, and evidently they were right because <laughs> um, it, 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 it's my jam. I it's like a hidden role. Uh, Sort of deceptive kind of game similar to a, a mafia, a werewolf, um, resistance, secret Hitler. If you've played any of those card games in the past, that can be played on a phone uh, for again accessibility purposes for free, or you can pay a, a small amount to play it on a computer. And I think to me, these kind of experiences really sort of capture the main goal about or what i think is the biggest positive and, and something we have sort of already touched on around casual games and accessible games in the way they bring people together i you know i can't think of any friend i couldn't teach among us to it's that simple right uh, and once i've taught them <laughs> everyone has a good time you know jackbox similarly i've been playing with uh work people uh you know with ages ranging from you know early 20s to to late 60s and do we have some teething issues? Yes, but by the end of it, they even the people in their sixties got it because it, it's just that easy to to answer questions and you pick the right games and um, to play with people, uh, and that's that's great to me. Um, I, I think that you know seeing the joy games bring to to anyone really highlights the importance in my mind of these really accessible, really simple to play, really smart. And well designed games, I would say, particularly in this COVID environment where, you know, board games, which were probably a bit more uh, accepted by non video game players as being pretty easy to pick up and play. Like, you know, most people happily play Monopoly or, you know, or something with you, or just, you know, a deck of cards and play something with that. But now that we can't do that and being able to play online, uh, these games have really shone as, as beacons of the value to having games like this in, in the world.
1: Ultimately, that's why charges against gaming in, to claim, oh, gaming is really casualized in 2020, look at all these phone games, look at all these free-to-play microtransaction games. It's quite the hollow point to make, and I think in many ways it misses the point of what gaming is all about, because I think we've both been clear from every episode in this podcast that one of the appeals of gaming that we both, find is that there's just just that sheer enjoyment element of it we we just have those memories of growing up and playing games that well largely on the 64 but games in general and really enjoying it and it's continued throughout most of our lives and that's something that we can always go back to and get that enjoyment out of and it's not just for the tragic gamers that you and i are it's it's for a large cross-section of society and the community at large that you get a mix of gamers like you just described, people that haven't really played games, people that play occasionally, people that have never touched a controller and experiences like Among Us, experiences like Jackbox and Animal Crossing, they open up to a whole new, a broader consumer base, a a broader playing base that people that can enjoy these experiences and especially the multiplayer ones you've described It allows people to socialize, it allows people to, make new connections It allows people to enjoy these experiences and i think ultimately that's what gaming is all about that's why i think this idea of i'm a really hardcore gamer i can play doom 2016 on legendary mode like yes that's impressive yes i'm going to watch people play guitar hero and shred through through fires and flame on the hardest difficulty without any mistakes and i'm going to think that person is a legend but And there is that part of gaming, and I don't want to take that away from anyone, because I think it is very impressive for people that become, I guess, quote-unquote professionals in certain online multiplayer games, people that become experts in certain games, and are just amazing. Like, I've watched a lot of professional Age of Empires 2 on YouTube, I've watched a bit of StarCraft, and I think what those people can do is absolutely amazing. So I don't want to take anything away from those people, but gaming isn't just about that sort of level of i'm a pro i can win tournaments there is that aspect and that's great and i i think it's fantastic and i wish i was as good as some of those people i know i'm not but i still enjoy games and i think that's what we have to keep in mind that people sometimes think about that aspect of games and they they see a barrier to entry because they think well i think it's especially people of our parents generation they think well I have no idea how this game works. I'm going to be really bad at it. I'm not going to give it a try. But the advent of these quote casual games, the advent of these experiences that you can play on your phone and tap some questions and answers and have a lot of fun. That's really opening it up gaming again. And it's breaking down those barriers. And I think going back to my earlier example, it's very much like those early days in the arcade. It's very much like pinball machines back in the day. Like I like, my mum would never play a game like we occasionally got her to play when we were growing up, but she just found it too difficult with controllers and just didn't have the mindset to do it, and that's fine. But I remember her talking about when she was growing up, she would play Pac-Man in the arcades a few times and really enjoyed that. So I think that's a really positive part of this so-called casualization of gaming in the modern era that it's just opened it up to a lot more people, That people that want to play those really hardcore experiences they can and they are there and they aren't cheapened. Well, most of them aren't cheapened and they can go on their merry way and enjoy that. And conversely, you can have people on the other end of the spectrum that purely play these more accessible games that they they will play with friends and they won't do it in their own time. And, and that's the two, I guess, extremes. And then everyone else finds themselves in the middle. And I think that's a really healthy environment for the medium that we really enjoy.
0: Yeah, 100%. Like, I mean, an interesting... Um... I don't know what you call it. It was a panel at uh, PAX Online from I want to say the Checkpoint dot org people, but I could be wrong. But one of those sort of mental health uh, in gaming uh, organizations were they're talking about. I mean, inherently, you know, humans like to play things. We get joy from playing things. It's not something that back in the day you say you stop playing with stuff when you become an adult and it's all serious business. <laughs> you know, that's not fundamentally true. Even adults love to play. Uh, and so, having avenues for people to play uh, games virtually is great. And, you know, the, the more people that can, the better. Uh, again, I, some of my best experiences are with these more casual games, uh, or at least as, you know, people label casual games. And I don't think that's going to change going forward. You know, as much as I'll enjoy beating a, a, a challenging shooter or platformer. I uh, in my own time and feel a sense of accomplishment. You know, I'm also gonna enjoy just silly fun that I can enjoy with friends or or even just by myself, you know. Like I'll I'm not, you know, against playing a, a simple game like a, a warrior where of my own and having a good time. So yeah, I mean I think you know, like a lot of things, the the sort of moderate answer is, is the best one There's there's room for both casual and hardcore games, and I don't think one's gonna disappear. I think they can both coexist pretty well. And we're almost there, I reckon. I think we're we're sort of in a a good balance at the moment. Uh, And hopefully that balance sort of continues going forward and allows for people to play whatever type of games they want, however they want, i say.
1: Just look at the launches of the Xbox Series X and the PlayStation 5 that are imminent, that are coming in a couple of months, and look at the reaction to people clamoring to get pre-orders, the pre-orders selling out in mere hours and people already scalping for double the price. And I'm sure some people have paid those exorbitant prices just to get those consoles day one at launch. And those are purely, I guess, core gaming experiences. They aren't particularly casual gaming. Someone who plays Animal Crossing religiously, someone who plays Clash of Clans or Clash Royale, they aren't going to go get one because they're very much happy to just have gaming on their phones and they play during a commute and that's the end of gaming in their life. But just look at the reaction people have had to these console launches and it really shows that that part of the hobby, that part of gaming is thriving. It's not dying. There's plenty of people clamoring to get those consoles. And then you can look at those wildly popular games like Fortnite, which you can play on a phone, but I'm sure... I don't have any statistics, of course, but I'm sure a lot of people started playing that on a phone and then progressed to playing it on consoles because you can sit down and play it with the controller and there's other elements to that and they use it as a sort of gateway into playing games. And I think that's why, well, the two parts of gaming can build off each other and grow alongside each other. It's not a case of, oh, casual gaming is killing core gaming or I'm a core gamer. I wanted to succeed. Casual gaming needs to die off. Phone games need to be obliterated. It's ruining the hobby. I, I think that's both views are narrow minded.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, I can sort of see some logic behind, like, I don't know, maybe some people have a concern that kids might cap out at phone level game complexity, but I, I don't think that's true, or at least it hasn't proven true. Maybe the studies that prove me wrong or prove me right. But overall, I think in general, the more people engaging in any sort of video game, uh, again to go back to, to what a said, making more gamers in the world uh, is only going to create more enthusiasts or hardcore gamers uh, who will buy these products that we currently enjoy and, and help grow that that space because uh, they might just need that that stepping stone from going from playing no games to. Okay, let me try this thing on a phone or on a you know a motion control easy sort of game on a switch or something like that. To okay, I sort of get how games work. Now let me try a similar game, but let me try it with a controller uh, or on a mouse and keyboard. Uh, so they can sort of learn, you know, like Fortnite's a good example. Learn how to play on a the touchscreen. Then okay, well I know how to play the fundamental game, so I don't need to think about that. But now I just need to think about how I use a control stick or a you know, w-a-s-d on a keyboard um that can be what gets them past that barrier into the the quote-unquote world of the the hardcore gamer <laughs> as much as i hate the term
1: you just want to recruit more people to your gaming uh cult don't you
0: look it i need money and the only way i'm going to get money is if people pay the cult membership <laughs> fees and that's 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 the plan i mean um, so thanks for spelling it out. Um, but you can download my cult game now on uh, all phones um, and just watch like the hypnosis screen for a solid like, two minutes if you can. That would be really appreciated.
1: And I think it also goes back to your point in an early episode where you said you can't imagine what people do when they don't game. You just want life to be simpler. You want everyone to game. Isn't that right?
0: If everyone gamed, it would make... Yeah, I'd be able to have a lot more people understand me and me understand them, um, which is is really all we want in life is to be understood. Uh, So definitely, that would would be perfect.
1: I think you just need to sit them down and force everyone you know to watch Pixels and Ready Player One and then they'll understand gaming.
0: Oh, of course. Ready Player One is just, you know, it's perfect Um, (laughs) in terms of its... Uh, it's basically the Bible for gamers, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, our culture and our, our, our lives uh, and where we want the world to head, I think. You know, it's got such fantastic characters as the people from Battleborn in Ready Player One. And that's how you know it's a true uh,
1: gamers uh, movie. Yep, just look at that accessibility.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, that was, I think, quite a good discussion you know, casual versus hardcore gaming and just sort of touching on difficulty and accessibility as well uh, and, and how they relate sort of all together. Luckily, this podcast is fairly accessible uh, <laughs> and, and free for, for all of you. And you can access us quite easily as well by tweeting at us at, at blowcartpod or email us at blowingcartridge at gmail.com. But if you also want to take that a step further to contact one of us directly, you can find me on Twitter at Egarino. Uh, and Brendan, do you want to give your at as well? Yes,
1: you can find me at Tamazoid if you want to see my daily rants about the world and why Zach needs to play more turn-based strategy games. And also you can contact us through our Facebook page, which is Blowing Cartridges.
0: I was going to say that, uh, but I forgot, because that, that's the casual way of, of catching you know contacting us it's through Facebook. The hardcore way is through email and the kind of middle ground is Twitter, <laughs> I would say. Um, so keep that in mind when you choose which method of reaching out.
1: And also don't forget to subscribe to us on whatever podcast service you use on Apple Podcast, on Spotify, on PodBean where we're hosted, on any sort of podcast app that scrapes those sources. Give us a subscription; it's free.
0: Subscribing, you can think of it in one of two ways. You can either think of it as the hardcore way of engaging with the podcast because you're committed then every week to or two weeks to listening to us, or it's the casual way of making it really easy to find out when we've got a new episode because you don't need to do anything because your podcast app will just download it for you. So, no matter where you fall on the
1: spectrum, you know there's a reason to subscribe. You missed the truly hardcore way to interact with our podcast, Zach. If if you want to go for the platinum achievement status for blowing cartridges, you, you need to go on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Leave leave a five-star review. Write the review. Talk about why we're so good. Why Zach's the smartest person you've ever heard. Why I'm a genius at Age of Empires 2, even though I can't beat all my friends, but I'm still a genius and one of the best players ever, of course a legend in my own lunchbox, so to say, but definitely leave us a review will help us immensely. Uh, Thank you very much to the people that have already left reviews. Uh, I would read them out, but every time I go to try to pull them up during a podcast, I can't figure out how to do so. Maybe one day I'll figure it out and you'll get your comments read on air, but don't bet on it. I'm sure if more people leave reviews, if more people share our podcast, more people bully their friends into listening to our podcast, that we will achieve that goal. So please do all those things and become hardcore supporters of blowing cartridges.
0: I was really worried you were going to say the hardcore way is to like stalk us and find out where we live and and break into our houses. So I'm glad you went with the (laughs) iTunes review and not not that. That was, I was scared for a moment, but with that, um, please don't do that. Don't stalk us. Um, I think it's a good time to end this here before I reveal any personal information that might, you know, lead my serial killer towards me. So, um, thanks for listening, guys, and uh, see you—or you'll not see you—you'll hear us in another two weeks.
1: Thanks for listening, and uh, definitely keep an eye out for the next episode.
0: Well, time to invest in the CCTV. <laughs> <laughs>